For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, StoryCorps brings us a man and his young daughter sharing memories of good times and bad. Meet bassist Reed Anderson of the cutting-edge jazz group The Bad Plus. Visit a barber school in Tucson and tour an exhibit created by refugee artists at the Tucson Museum of Art. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is listening is an act of love. Since 2003, thousands of people from around the world have had the opportunity to record stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. A team from StoryCorps is in Tucson now, and next we'll hear Rogelio Camarillo talking with his daughter, Lourdes, who is 11 years old. Do you have any uh, important family traditions you can think of? I like Mexican food. Mexican food. <laughs> okay, but how about traditions, like things that we traditions do? Traditions like the posadas uh, and all the buñuelos. Buñuelos. Pos posadas in Navidad time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's probably one of my favorite too. <laughs> what would be one of your earliest memories that you remember? Like when I was a baby or like right now? Yeah, when you were a baby. Like the first thing, as far back as you can think, like how about personal stuff, things that you've accomplished? that you've done or that you've experienced? Well, when I was little, the thing that I was like, oh my gosh, I finally did it, was when I stopped sucking my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that too. Because <laughs> I was sleeping and mom would always tell me like, don't suck your thumb. And I just couldn't sleep. Like my thumb was like all over here. I was like, okay, I can't, I'm gonna do it. And I just can't, I couldn't sleep. And so just like, I'm just like, I have to do it. And then it was like, <sighs> so. That took a long time to get you to stop that habit. Yeah. We put chile on your hands. We put all kinds of spices and lemon and things that I make would it taste. I still like it. <laughs> and you still. It didn't work. But it comes, it's part of your family because your tío, who is in heaven now, your tío Rodolfo, he used to suck his thumb too. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. High five. Yeah, high five. <laughs> in heaven now. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. That's where he is. <laughs> too funny. Uh, going back to memories, what is your first memory of me? Like when you would come back from work and then all the steam from the pots and what mom was cooking and then you would come and then you would serve the plates and all that. Hmm. And when you would work in the studio mm -hmm. or when you were like working out. Mm -hmm. You got a good memory. <laughs> um, so you said that the saddest day in your life was when, when your mom and I got divorced about three years ago now. Was that, for you, was that sadder than when we realized that you had cancer? I didn't really care that much. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know, as long as this medicine tastes good. Yeah, you're about five and a half years old when we realized you had cancer in your eye, but you didn't even feel anything. It was a miracle we found it. You know how we found it? Yeah, I've heard it a lot of times. Oh, you have? <laughs> when you were talking to the guy in the D-backs game in Phoenix. Oh, right, right. When I was, like, playing with my dolls, and you were coming from work, and you were going to be like, hi! And I looked at you, and then there was, like, this white thing. 
like white balloon light thingy revolver. <laughs> right. Well, I saw a gold shimmer in your eye. That'd be kind of creepy. <laughs> well, it was. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Like, what is that? You're like, I thought you had a glitter in your eye or something, <laughs> but I couldn't see it again. And then about a week later, one of your aunts, your, your tia Pupi, was visiting, and you guys were playing a, a staring game, remember? And it was dim in the in the living room. So your pupil was dilated, and she saw a little something, and then she showed your mom and I. And then we just took you to the doctor one day, and next thing we know, three And days. like a billion doctors were like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And yeah. the last one's like, go to St. Jude's Hospital in Los Angeles. And you're like, what? Yeah, it was <laughs> Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it took us three days to find it. But next thing we know, we are in Los Angeles. And I remember one thing in particular. The psychologist who prepared us before the surgery, we were in her office, and you were playing with a bunch of toys on the floor, and your mom and I were sitting there, and she was telling us what to expect from the surgery and, and everything. And she was talking out loud so that you can hear what we were going to do without hiding anything from you, but not saying it directly to you. But we knew you were listening, and you were smart, so I knew you were picking it up. Mm -hmm. I was and eavesdropping. You were eavesdropping. <laughs> and on the way out, your nana and tata and your mom were walking ahead, and you and I were walking a little further back. And I remember asking you, do you understand what's happening? Do you understand what we're going to do? And you looked at me and you said, yes, they're going to they're gonna take out my eye because of the cancer. And I said, exactly. What do you think about that? How do you feel? And you said, well, I'm scared. And I thought, okay, that's natural to be scared, but what, what are you scared of? And you said, because it's going to hurt when they take out my eye. But I remember telling you, it won't hurt, I promise. They're going to put you to sleep. And when you wake up, it's all over. You won't even know the difference. It might hurt a little. It's going to feel weird because you're going to have a new eye, a prosthetic eye. But, you know, you're going to pretty much look the same. I didn't like about, like, the part when I was, like, like laying down. And then um, they were um, measuring, like, which would fit better. Uh -huh. And I didn't like it because it took out. And then, and then oh, the prosthetic. Then, yeah. Oh, no, that was a different that was a doctor in Los Angeles. Actually, that was the ocularist, Dr. Haddad. I just remember when we were at the old McDonald's house. The Ronald McDonald house Yeah, in Los Ronald Angeles. McDonald's house. Uh -huh. And I had the eye patch, and we were watching TV. And we were laying down, and then one morning I woke up, and I could, like, I couldn't feel it, but I could kind of, like, feel the socket kind of. And then I would wake up and I'd be like, do I even remember when I had two eyes? <laughs> and I just, I didn't remember. Because I was like, okay, my two, I had two eyes. Okay, that would be weird. Would I be looking this way or this way or this way, this way? Like, I would be like Perry the Platypus. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I want you to remember always, besides the fact that you'll always be my changuita, my little <laughs> no matter how old you get, words to live by. Your, your great-grandfather, Ramon Carvajal, he said, I want to be remembered like this. I want my children and grandkids to remember me like this. Recuerden que tuvieron unos abuelos, unos bisabuelos, pobres, pero muy honrados y muy trabajadores. And I want that to live in your heart, your great-grandfather's words. Yes, we were poor, but we were very honest and very hardworking. Remember that always. Honesty is the most important thing. And that I love you. <laughs> <laughs> we heard Lourdes and Rogelio Camarillo 
recorded at the StoryCorps booth at the Reed Park Zoo in Tucson. More stories are at azpm.org. When Grammy-nominated saxophonist Joshua Redman performs Friday at the Fox Theater, he'll be backed by his frequent collaborators, The Bad Plus, a genre-bending trio that's just come off the road from a European tour. The Bad Plus is Ethan Iverson on piano, David King on drums, and Reed Anderson on bass. Anderson talked with Ben Need about his career, starting with growing up in Minneapolis in the 1980s. You know, I started playing music when my parents bought one of those family organs. I must have been like maybe six or seven, started taking lessons on that. For some reason, they didn't buy a piano because, you know, they didn't really know anything about music. So they bought the organ because I thought it would be more fun somehow. You know, I ended up playing trumpet in high school and eventually got drawn to the bass. Started on electric bass and playing in rock bands and that kind of thing. And eventually, just through curiosity and other friends like David King, who's also in the Bad Plus, we grew up together. Just, you know, found my way to more traditional jazz and then the avant-garde and etc. I think you and uh, David and Ethan encountered each other uh, somewhere in the 1990s, but actually never really formed the trio proper until some 10 years later. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, I met Ethan in 1990, and the three of us did get together sort of unremarkably once just at my parents' place. But yeah, the three of us never played together again until 2000, although we were you know, aware of what each other was doing and in fact played in each other's projects over the years. Well, the, the Bad Plus uh, auspiciously debuted uh, in the early 2000s. It kind of seemed at time, and I remember there was quite a buzz around that. You guys really made a big impact uh, right away. Yeah, it was a crazy occurrence for us. We really didn't expect it to be as, you know, to get as much attention as it did. How did coming uh, together with Joshua Redman come about? We were playing a week at the Blue Note, and it was some anniversary year, and so they wanted everybody to have a special guest. Joshua was proposed to us, and we thought, okay, yeah, let's do that. We hadn't played with him before. We knew him uh, just as a fellow musician, and because he's the most famous uh, saxophone player of our generation, etc. But he came in, and we sent him some of our music that we thought would make sense uh, to add a saxophone to, and that was pretty much it. We showed up the first day, ran through the songs, played them that week and you know we all in the end we had a really good feeling about it and, and felt if we if we had an opportunity to do it again that we should do it. You gave me a real nice thumbnail sketch of how you came to this from one of those shopping mall organs in your house as a kid and then eventually uh, you know here you are a, a jazz musician playing acoustic bass and touring the world. Did you do the, the formalized jazz approach at one point in your life? Yeah you know I can say for all four of us, none of us had really a proper jazz education, but we've all passionate about music and have been since a young age and have sought out various teachers and, you know, just seeing, seeking out performances, going to see live music and listening to records and all that. I have a degree in classical music and that's pretty much it. I have no, uh, no jazz, no, I don't have any paper that says I can play jazz. I noticed you have yourself four out of the nine compositions on uh, the album and the lead-in track and the uh, concluding track. I enjoy the one Dirty Blonde. 
Um, it's about the hair color. Okay, nothing in terms of an old girlfriend <laughs> or a flame or anything like that? You know, I'm sorry, I don't... <laughs> I wish I could tell you lots of stories and thoughts behind the music, but it's more just about music in just an abstract sense. And we do, we do think a lot about the titles because it's an important jumping-off point. It's, it's evocative of something, but, you know, they don't necessarily... Uh, always or even very often have stories behind them sure and i I guess i'm looking into it a lot more than i should (laughs) (laughs) well you know you're you're welcome to do that that's that's the thing you know uh, hopefully that that's where it leads sure well that's that's part of the fun of it i think I guess there's nothing to say in terms of the title for Silence is the Question, which uh, uh, has you playing very nice bass solo right, right at the very beginning. Well, thank you. That's, that's actually an older song. It actually predates the Bad Plus even, but it's, you know, it's something we've played a lot over the years, and it, it's, very, it's a very powerful piece when we can pull it off. It takes a lot of energy, but you know, it's, it's almost like a performance art in a way because we just we start from basically nothing and then take it as far as we can go. That was Reed Anderson, bassist and composer with The Bad Plus. The trio performs with saxophonist Joshua Redman Friday at 8 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. 81-year-old Ray Campas owns and operates Hollywood Barber College in Tucson. He's been barbering for over 50 years and teaching the trade to young people for more than two decades. Next, Mitchell Riley visits Ray Campas and his students. He wants this place to look nice. Everybody has a chore, so get your chores done. He's always watching. He sees everything. He's always telling us, stand up straight, you know, don't slouch, look professional. I feel like I'm privileged to to learn from someone that good. And uh, he started just when he was young as me, so hopefully I'll end up just like him. Ray, I mean, he's, he's old school. He's done it for 50 plus years. I believe Ray knows everything. <laughs> Let's say you're walking in here to the shop. I, I'm not looking at your shoes, and I'm not looking at your clothes. I'm looking at your hair. Picture the haircut and that. I tell them, we're not selling clothes. We're not selling shoes. You know, we're selling haircuts. My name is Ray Compass, and I'm the owner of Hollywood Barber College. Remember, the light spot is your guide, OK? I'll be 81 next month. Start a little lower than then, OK? I've been the teacher, you know, for quite a while. I don't know, something like 22 years now, I guess. Put this comb in, in this corner here. Oh, I've learned everything from Ray. My name is Kara Denius, and I am an instructor here at Hollywood Barber College. The straight razor, you need to make sure that the, you're not pushing no, too no, hard no. down. Just, yeah, gently. As a student, I loved it. That's why I, I came back. I consider him family. He's he's an extraordinary barber. I've learned so much. I learned still so much. So if you stay get in front of him right here and do this, see the guide's over to the left. 
anytime you watch, you can pick up something new and different that he might do that maybe he might not say. So you just kind of watch the detail. I, I think that's exciting. Let your eyes show you the, the darkness, the shadows, you know, the shadows, you know, make a good haircut. My folks want me to go to college. They couldn't afford it, you know. So I seen an ad in the paper, Tucson Barber College. My group was the second group of graduating from there, so that's how I got into barbering. I worked at night and came to school in the daytime. Way back, you know, 53, 1953, you know, I started. I was at a shop called Maestro's. Good and the telling guy, he got me, he offered me a job while I was in barber college, see? He, he taught me a lot of just how to take care of customers, you know. Yeah, that's where you put part. Yeah, you're gonna grab it this way. It's not just somebody you're gonna take it six, seven dollars away from him, you know. You gotta treat him special. Nice. Thank you, Ray. They come in and they tell me I got a birthday. Well, it don't cost you nothing. Happy birthday, you know. La niña. Muy bien, gracias. I grew up at the Water Hollywood, and uh, we opened a shop there. At that time, I was married, and my wife said, "What are we gonna name it?" If you're at the Water Hollywood, I said, "So we'll name it Hollywood." So that's how the name stuck. It's uh, at that time is. Everybody got a shave in the way to work. So it was always the first, same customers every morning. There was more to being a barber. There was more in the industry. There was always something new that would come up and uh, I wanted to learn it. And I kept learning as much as I could to where I just about could do anything with hair. So when you're gonna do that, you gotta really take it up. All done with the razor, no shears, no Clippers, just razor cut. It's an art. You know, it's like an artist doing a, a nice painting. I want something like 60s, 66 or It's got to be a habit. Wherever there was a, a show, competition, I want to go. When it comes to barbering, there's always someone watching. Whether it be the guy cutting next to you, the guy being cut next to you, you never know who's gonna walk in through that door and you should always treat everybody the same. My name is Patricio and I'm a student at Hollywood Barber College. He said that even when he was um, barbering for, for decades, he would still take these master courses and always learning. Just how to not be satisfied with being okay, always get better. My name's Alejandra, I'm 20, and I'm about to graduate. I hope to be cutting as long as Ray. <laughs> um, the more you cut, the more experience, the better you get throughout the years, you know. My mom and my aunts, they all are barbers. They all came here eight years or more ago. Everyone has their own style, and you get to make people look good and be happy with how they look. I've tried to teach them 
to be respectful. Take you over to the front. Yep. Customers like to be taken care of by professionals. And I've had students that I've had to say, I can't teach you. You're, you're set in your ways, and that's the way it is. You know, nobody here can help you. I want them to be the best, you know, that's what they do. Happy, have a nice family. I, I said to myself one day, I like to rent a big place and have a big reunion, you know. I don't think I, there's a big enough place to have a reunion. Sometimes I'll stop by at their shop, say hi. makes me feel good that they are successful. I love them all. I say they're all my kids. That was a radio adaptation of an Arizona Illustrated story produced by Mitchell Riley. You can see the video on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Hopi Foundation established the Owl and Panther Project in 1995 for refugee families whose lives have been impacted by trauma, imprisonment, and torture. The goal, to provide sanctuary and a creative space where people of all ages can share art from their homeland while learning something new. From children to seniors, their work, including paintings, fabric designs, sculpture, and poetry, tells personal stories about loss and discovery. My name is Marge Pellegrino and I'm the program manager for the Allen Panther Project. Allen Panther works with expressive arts programming because it does help people heal. And the folks that we work with have experienced a really difficult time and they've been um, chosen for this program because the work that we do allows them to take what's inside and put it out. And and it gives them a respite. Sometimes they say that on, on Tuesday nights, they don't think about the things that are really bothering them. It's, it's a way to separate from the heaviness. And we're really grateful to the Tucson Museum of Art for partnering with us. This is our fifth year working with them, with not only art from the folks that we work with now, but we've also invited our alumni to come back. And some of our alumni, folks who were little kids, who are now coming back with their kids, have created for this show as well, so it's really exciting for us. My name is Mayra Guillén Vargas, and I am from Veracruz, Mexico. I came here when I was three years old. I started out on Panther when I was about maybe about six years old, and I was in it until I was a junior in high school. And what do you remember about that experience? Uh, was it important to you growing up? I think it was the best years of my life. Every single volunteer, every single person, everybody made a difference in my life. They made me the woman I am now. What kind of art did you uh, learn to do or did you find that you enjoyed? Writing. It was the best part of it because we could express ourselves through writing. We learned to tell the world what we felt, what we wanted the world to hear from us. Did you end up making friends from distant places in the world? Absolutely. I have friends from Africa, friends from Central America, from Guatemala. They just didn't become my friends, they became a part of my family. One sculpture in the exhibit is built around the bottom half of a real window. 
A hand-sculpted cat made of bronze stands on its hind legs with its front paws placed against the glass as if the cat is looking at something far away. I asked the artist, Leonardo, who was once a political prisoner in Chile, to explain his work. This is a, a cat that represents a cat saying goodbye to a friend who, during the military government in Chile, he was arrested and later disappeared. When we were together in prison, uh, he was taken to a vehicle and he turned his back to look one more time at his home. And nobody was home except his cat was in the window, standing like, like holding the uh, glass. And, and, and he said that image and he took it with him and then he shared with me the image. And later in my life, uh, I was in a meeting in a house and I saw a cat standing more or less like this. And I said, I had to take a picture of the cat in my head. So I, I keep saying, I need to do that drawing, I need to do that drawing. And I said, that's it, I'm going to do this cat and see what happens. And that's pretty much the story to that's, make a show. That's a beautiful story though. How does it make you feel to have this work displayed in the museum? Very proud, very uh, accomplished. Uh, I'm very happy that they invite me. My name is Rasul. I'm 17 years old. I'm from Iraq, and I'm, I've been working with Alan Panther for four years now. It, it taught me a lot of things to, to be an artist, to be a writer, uh, you know, to learn how to write better. What kind of projects have you been working on most recently? What's the latest thing for you? Uh, timeline. A timeline is talking about my life and where I came from and like who I am now and how I changed. Um, what kind of materials do you use to create the timeline? I wrote, you know, I used my imagination to write it and then I used art with it between art and writing like that. It was, it was pretty awesome. Um, before you worked with the Owling Panther Club, had you ever done art for yourself? Had you ever created stuff when you were younger? Nah, not that much. Not till I came to Alan Panther. You know, the people like Marge and Mariana, they they helped me. They made me, you know, change my attitude for art and writing. It was pretty good. I liked it. What do you think uh, you're going to do with this art training that you've received here? Uh, I don't know. I want to, like, change, like, make you know, other people to learn about it, this stuff, art. You know, this like this place is awesome. Like for good, you know, people from another countries, it's it's good for them. Talk about life. I was born for a reason in the hot desert in the summer season. Life is like art, and I'm the museum. My art is like my feelings, and everyone can see them. The exhibit "Museum as Sanctuary: Perspectives of Resilience" is at the Tucson Museum of Art through the end of January. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.